Hello, my name's David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. We are barely 48 hours since Donald Trump left this side of the Atlantic. I think it's fair to say that the dust has still not settled. It was quite a trip. We're going to be talking about that, but we're also going to be talking about what's going on in politics in the United States. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, the magazine that publishes its political analysis in between essays on art and history, philosophy and technology, Princess Margaret or the Garden of Eden. Visit lrb.co.uk forward slash talking for a reading list of similarly eclectic pieces to accompany today's episode and a special subscription offer for Talking Politics listeners. Six months of the LRB for just £1 an issue. I'm joined by Helen Thompson and also by Gary Gerstel, Mellon Professor of American History here in Cambridge, author of many books, most recently A History of the American State called Liberty and Coercion. Great title. It's been quite a week in the history of liberty and coercion. We're going to get on to Helsinki, Brexit, all of that stuff in a minute, but Actually, I wanted to start with the other side of this, because I think it's also been a week where the stark contrast between the two sides of the Trump presidency have never been more clear, because there is the show, the spectacle, that's what we've had in Europe this week, the tweeting, the press conferences, the craziness, saying things, saying contradictory things 40 minutes later, everything on the surface. And then there is what you might call the deal, the bargain that I think many people in the United States who voted for Trump made with themselves, their consciences, maybe with their God, which was that the reason Hillary Clinton must not win and the Republican candidate must win is that in this presidential term, it was possible that two and maybe even three Supreme Court vacancies would come up. And there have now been two. And Trump has nominated his candidate for the second of these vacancies, Brett Kavanaugh. And that is not the show. That is, in many ways, a conventional choice. I think a lot of commentators have pointed out it is a strikingly conventional and possibly even pragmatic choice, given the range of options, that it looks likely that Kavanaugh will be confirmed. So, Gary, just on that question of the politics, not of what we've seen in Europe this week, but of the US Supreme Court, is it fair to say that Trump's choice, and Gorsuch before this, is a con- what you'd expect of a Republican president. This is not Trump politics. This is just Republican politics. Yes, I think that's the case. Perhaps less so with Gorsuch, who's more of a wild card, and his jurisprudence is somewhat unpredictable. Kavanaugh is a strategic choice for Trump for a variety of reasons. Kavanaugh is very close to the Bush administration, and this represents a point of reconciliation. He comes from the insurgent Federalist Society, where Supreme Court nominees have been groomed for decades now, but the Federalist Society is so well established, it is now part of the establishment itself. He is well regarded at Yale Law School, the bastion of liberal jurisprudence in America. He certainly has conservative credentials, but Trump did not pick the most radical jurisprudential figure. This is not a moment where he's going directly to his base. This is more, I want to get a conservative Supreme Court judge appointed. I can't flag the issue of abortion too highly. Kavanaugh also is someone who you might call a soft originalist rather than a hard originalist. We can talk more about that later if you want to. And has regard for precedent. 
there are elements of older conservatism in him, which means regard for institutions, precedents, which make him less likely to be a bomb thrower. Or so this is part of the Trump calculation. Because seen from the outside, I think most people outside the US look at this and think, well, there's sort of conservative jurisprudence or whatever. And then there's the outrage of people on the Democratic side or on the left who want to resist this. And it's this kind of binary thing. But actually, in some ways, the really interesting distinctions are on the conservative side, because, as you say, Gorsuch turns out on the court to be closer to Clarence Thomas, whereas Kavanaugh may be more like Roberts. And Roberts, the, the chief justice, to many conservatives has been a disappointment, right? I mean, on healthcare, for instance, there was some view that maybe on healthcare, he was saving his fire for the thing that really matters, which is abortion down the line. But he, he's both pragmatic and also, in some senses, politically aware. I mean, he's thinking about the political reputation of the court. Yes, the politics of the Supreme Court are quite complex, and they, they do circulate around Roberts, who has his eye on history and on his reputation, and his hero is Chief Justice John Marshall, the first Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. And he wants to go down in American history as a respected jurist, and he wants to have a court that's going to deliver in that regard. And he has clearly, as more radical justices have been appointed, radical in a conservative sense, he has moved to the center. The best demonstration of that is his vote to uphold the Affordable Care Act. He is reluctant to have really major issues decided in controversial ways by slim five to four votes. I think his role as a centrist on the court is only going to increase with the appointment of Kavanaugh. So if we look at strategically, what is it going to take for Trump to really deliver the court to arch conservatism? Kavanaugh and Gorsuch won't be enough. At least one more appointment will be required in order to render Roberts's moderating role inconsequential. I think that would be interesting to see how moderating Roberts would be on the abortion question, because the position that he took on the Affordable Care Act seemed very much at least motivated in the way in which he presented his argument by saying, look, the court has got to be very wary about striking down federal legislation that a president committed himself to during an election campaign. But abortion's obviously not that kind of issue. In some sense, what's at issue in the abortion case is is whether it can go back into democratic politics or not, particularly at the state level. I've got no idea which way he's going to go on that, but I can see that from his mindset that they're not the same kind of question. Yes, he does have his mind uh, made up to make this more of a legislative choice, but he has a different set of concerns in mind as well. And the different set of concerns are jurisprudential one. Roe versus Wade has been settled law since 1973, a, a very long time. And precedent matters, accumulation of decisions matter. He may be reluctant to overturn such a consequential decision by a five to four vote. That's where his conservative institutional instincts might come into play. And also he has other options, and this has already been happening, which is other cases are coming before the court where the question is not, are we going to overturn Roe versus Wade? The question is, are we going to add additional restrictions to the abortion process? Are we going to allow individual states to put more restrictions on access mm -hmm. to abortion? In other words, there are two ways to kill abortion in the United States. One is simply overturn it, and then the other possibility is a thousand cuts until effectively vast majorities of American women, although legally they have a right to abortion, have no 
real access to abortion providers. And already in the country, there are vast stretches of territory where you have to travel 100 miles in order to get access to abortion. So this is already happening. Okay, I think as well, isn't it, it's important to say here that actually Roe versus Wade hasn't been overturned, but it is not the Supreme Court's last word on this matter. That's actually Casey versus Planned Parenthood in 1992, mm. which actually upheld Roe versus Wade, but actually shifted the framework the trimester framework that Roe versus Wade had established into a viability of the fetus framework and undue burden. And that leaves actually a lot more room for states to legislate, particularly in the latter parts of the pregnancy past the first three months than was the case under Roe versus Wade, which is why a number of the states have been able to pass restrictive laws. And you would only need, I think, to push Casey versus Planned Parenthood a bit more, particularly in view of the fact that changes in medicine mean that the fetus is now viable at an earlier stage than it was in 1992 to actually produce about really quite substantive change. So I was looking this morning at the polling on abortion. I didn't genuinely didn't know what it was, trying to see on the central question. It is one of the central questions in American politics, how people divide. So Gallup does a poll every year, going back forever. So this is from May this year. And on the choice, people ask the question, are you pro-life or pro-choice? It is 48-48. I was also struck by the fact that only 2% of people said they didn't understand the question, which would not be the case if that was asked in the UK. And without wanting to trivialise either issue by comparing it to the other, it did remind me of the other polling I was reading this morning, which was on Brexit. Because, again, you can frame it as this binary, remain, leave, pro-life, pro-choice, and then the country is split down the middle. But the actual politics of it is not binary. In either case, in the Brexit case, there was then a separate set of questions about no deal, some deal, remain. In this case, Gallup also asked the question, legal under any circumstances for abortion, legal under most, legal under a few, and illegal, legal under none. And it's legal under a few that has the plurality. But it is also true, and there was a really interesting, I thought, article in the New York Times last weekend by Ross Douthat about Kavanaugh's appointment talking about the possibility of a sense of betrayal on the right. The focus in Europe tends to be the betrayal on the left, like the, Trump has stolen the Supreme Court and for a generation going to freeze out progressive values. But the fear on the right is that Kavanaugh, as you described, Gary, is more of a Roberts than a Thomas or a Gorsuch. And that this has been a generational struggle to overturn Roe versus Wade. And death by a thousand cuts will not be enough. The implication was... This is our moment. It's not enough sort of pragmatic, slow undoing of this. We need the victory that we have been working towards for a generation. And if Roberts and Kavanaugh plus the other conservative justice don't deliver it, we, the conservative movement, will have been betrayed. I mean, that is, that's a possibility here, that actually Trump's pragmatism on this is going to lead to a reaction on the right. It may well do so, and the right is skilled in the politics of betrayal, and there's a long history of Supreme Court justices being appointed by conservative presidents meant to secure a conservative majority, and the rollback of Roe versus Wade has not happened. This effort began in the 1980s, and then it supposedly intensified in the 1990s. So the theme of betrayal on the part of conservatives is very intense. It's very integral to their politics. And it also explains why they have gone for certainly one of the most extraordinary developments. Trump is arguably the most pagan 
figure to ever inhabit the White House. And the idea that conservative evangelicals have hitched their hopes to him, to this pagan, as the instrument of God who's finally going to deliver the right verdict on Roe versus Wade is itself extraordinary and speaks to this long history of frustration, a sense of betrayal, something that should have happened a long time ago. Perhaps it will happen now. And we are in a very volatile, explosive situation. I think it's wrong to think that the right will explode if Kavanaugh doesn't deliver in the medium term. I think there's quite likely going to be a third appointment, and that third appointment is probably going to be the most important for securing the repeal of Roe versus Wade. So I think the evangelicals are probably thinking of a, of a five-year strategy now in order to get this overturned. I think the important thing here is that the initial sort of hope that the Christian conservatives, those who were bitterly opposed to Roe versus Wade, had wasn't necessarily focused on the Supreme Court. It was also focused on trying to change the Constitution, and that kind of went nowhere. And then by the 80s, the middle of the 80s, you have this situation where Reagan, I think Reagan, between Reagan and George Bush Sr., I think they get five to appoint five Supreme Court justices. And this is supposed to be the moment that you've both said of you know the conservative crusade about overturning Roe versus Wade is going to be realised, and it's supposedly going to culminate in a case, and that case was Casey versus Planned Parenthood and Justice Kennedy, the one who's just resigned. And I think this is why this is symbolically important. In the initial hearing, says he's going to side with ending Roe versus Wade, and then he changes his mind, and Roe versus Wade is upheld five versus four. And actually, not that much of the legislation from the Pennsylvania state legislature is struck down in Casey versus Planned Parenthood. But this is a moment where literally victory is within their grasp, and it, and Kennedy, as they see it betrays them, one of the people who Reagan had nominated to the court. So if it happens again, whereby they get this opportunity of filling at least two, possibly three, and nothing changes, I think that that's the end of them trying to use the court as the means of fighting this abortion issue. They will change strategy. I can't see how they cannot in some sense. And change strategy to democratic electoral politics. Well, trying to use as much as the law now allows to have as many states as possible go right to the limit of what is restrictive. And I think under the 1992 decision, there is actually quite a bit of scope, particularly given the fact that the shift from the trimester framework to the viability of the fetus framework it does allow quite a bit of latitude. Gary, before we get back to Trump, because we are going to get back to Trump, as you say, someone like Kavanaugh, he's kind of, we were joking about this before, he, he's raised for this. He's part of a conservative movement that over a generation has tried to create justices that will deliver. We were joking, it's like picking sort of footballers when they're seven years old, spotting their talent. You can imagine the young Kavanaugh, age six, winning a debating competition and getting groomed to deliver precisely this. But is the central issue, because it's really hard as an outsider quite to capture how and why abortion is such an important and divisive issue in American politics. Is this fundamentally for that legal conservative movement about abortion or is it about state rights? I mean, it's obviously a bit about both. But is it is the ultimate goal this central moral issue for them of our time? Or is it about the power of the administrative state and rolling it back? Well, I think it's both. I think uh, abortion is a hugely moral issue and the evangelical right, this has been their most important issue for a generation. 
But the issue of the administrative state, the centralization of power in Washington is also extraordinarily important. And this, there may be more action on this front than on the abortion front. So in sense, that was my question. Might he not deliver on one part of this? Because actually what this is really about is the other. Yes, there's another group of conservatives who are not particularly motivated by religion, but who are motivated by a secular conception of liberty. And that secular conception of liberty is that liberty is to be found in individuality and markets and strong central states strangle individual liberty. There's a long history of this in in America. And another major goal of the conservative movement is to overturn every dimension and element of the regulatory state. And if Trump has been loyal to evangelical Christians, he has also been loyal to those libertarians who want to overturn the regulatory state. In addition to a a rapprochement with Bush, there's also been a rapprochement with the Koch brothers who are the leading libertarians in America. Their company is the third wealthiest. They have a fortune of $85 million. They dedicated... Eighty-five billion, I believe. I'm sorry, did I say million? Eighty-five billion. They dedicated one billion alone to fighting the 2016 election. Mike Pence is their man in the White House, and they have been systematically staffing just about every regulatory agency with their people, with the goal being to strip either administratively or by law the power of the central state to regulate. And this is happening in environmental matters, labor matters, management of public lands, every uh, management of corporation, almost every issue that you can imagine. This is going forward, and Kavanaugh may be more decisive in this area in the short term than in the abortion. So I think to keep our eyes simply focused on abortion may miss some very important areas of battle. And there's one area of deregulation that fits under this, but is also distinct. And that is the future of, of affirmative action, which the right sees as another form of social engineering from the center, not letting individuals be individuals in American society and rise and fall according to their own merits. And I think we can expect to see perhaps further strikes against affirmative action and major strikes against the regulatory state to roll it back to a point before the New Deal and in some respects before 1900 and Woodrow Wilson and Theodore Roosevelt. I'm glad you mentioned Mike Pence because that kind of gets us onto the other thing that we're going to be talking about here, not least because all those people who want Trump impeached and tried for treason and whatever, they'll get Pence. And actually, not only is Pence the Koch brothers representative in Washington, but of course, in many ways, he's much closer to the evangelical Christian idea of what a politician who makes abortion the central part of their moral platform looks like. And certainly in his career, abortion has been a much more central issue for Pence than we know for Trump, who has flip-flopped on that question. People have almost forgotten, I think, in this week, the be careful what you wish for thing. There was a lot of talk about Pence sort of six months, a year ago, would you rather have Trump or Pence? And partly because people have been so riled up by what happened in Helsinki, they seem to have forgotten that if you impeach Trump, you get Pence. I think there's another element to this, though. I don't think it's even just abortion plus state rights. It's also the question of democracy versus judicial activism. And I think this has become increasingly important in the conservative discourse. And it's actually not just in terms of what's been going on in, in the United States. And I think in this respect, Trump actually does more than Pence share those sets of concerns that actually that the way that these conservatives see it and i think trump signs up to this that that liberalism has advanced over the last 30 40 years in the united states or 50 years even by the court and that it is not earned in some sense its victories in democratic politics and in some sense they do have a point <laughs> because when you look at the nature of the decisions in roe versus wade and casey versus 
Planned Parenthood, it's very difficult to see how you get all these really nuanced positions about when abortion can and cannot occur out of the Constitution. And so Steve Bannon kind of obviously is, deploys this kind of argument more generally, is, is a critique that says, look, liberalism is in some sense illegitimate because it is taking its victories outside democratic politics and we want reassertion of democratic politics. Now, I don't think that in the 80s that the conservatives that were fighting about abortion were concerned about this anywhere near as much as that they've become in recent years. Good. You mentioned Bannon. That's another segue into Europe because he's been hanging around in Europe plotting for the next year's European parliamentary elections, which he thinks is going to be the next stage in his battle to bring victory to democracy over the bureaucratic or legal liberal establishment. We're going to talk about Helsinki eventually. It's like we're, we're circling around it. Helsinki, which was described on MSNBC by someone as a moment that will live in infamy like Pearl Harbor and Kristallnacht, which I think may be going too far. Before we get there, he was in Britain. He, Trump, he staged a characteristically helpful intervention in the Brexit debate and also characteristically consistent. He said one thing to the sun and then he said something else in his press conference the next day. Helen, do you think it made any difference? I mean, before we get on to the Putin question, did Trump change anything about the current Brexit turmoil by blowing in and blowing out again and blowing hard while he was here? I think it had the potential to, but perversely by the end of the week, at the end of his visit, I think he actually helped Theresa May because he had to retreat so quickly from the position that he'd adopted in backing or peering to back Johnson in his son interview and then Johnson absolutely not being able to do anything with the opportunity that he was given. You saw people who had been pretty intensely critical of Theresa May who were a bit rallying to her side. Now obviously things have also moved on since then. There have been these series of votes in the Parliament but again you know, she's... She's still there. She's still there. As of Wednesday morning she's, she's still Prime she's, Minister. There was she, a moment last night where they were wobbling. She survived... I think that what it did in some sense, though, is is it raised the issue, or at least implicitly raised the issue, of how difficult it would be for her to take advantage of the opportunity that, in principle, Trump's victory over Hillary Clinton's victory gave for pushing Brexit. Because you can say that, actually, the ways in which the EU 27 had set up to negotiate was premised on a Hillary Clinton victory. And this idea that maximum pressure, to use that Trumpian language, was going to be placed against the European Union during the course of the Brexit negotiations was not something that had been understandably factored into it. But it turns out that it's either not possible or the British government simply isn't willing and doesn't feel that it's got the domestic capacity to shift British policy towards allying with Trump a bit more about some of these issues and basically try to use his attempt at disruption in the European Union to create a space for the British government. Now, I think that's in part because there simply would be so little domestic consent in Britain for allying with the Trump administration. But I think that something about the visit brought that issue out. What did you think when you saw Trump at Chequers? Did you think he was um, helping anyone? I think he was trying to hurt Theresa May. The Sun interview was extraordinary, breaking every rule of diplomatic etiquette. Why we should be surprised about that anymore, uh, I don't know. But I think the attack on NATO and the submission to Putin so overshadow now the visit to the UK that I, it seems to me that the Trump visit itself to the UK is not going to, to me, is not going to play a significant role in Brexit politics, although the fallout from the attack on NATO and the submission to Putin is going to reverberate 
through the politics of every country uh, in Europe and, and the United States for quite some time. So he's come back and Trump has clearly wanted to try and signal because he has registered something didn't go right for him in Helsinki and he's already rode back on one of the things he said by adding a not into the crucial sentence about whether the Russians might have interfered in the election. But the message that he wants people to get from his visit was that it had a signal triumph at its heart, which is that he got lots and lots of money out of the Europeans for NATO and for defence. And that was his great victory. It was a victory in money terms, as he said. Now, I came back from Europe. He almost put it as, and we made a lot of money out of that trip. Does does anyone buy that in the States? That's been overshadowed as well, so it's hard to know. But I I think, yes, he is changing the terms of debate and negotiation within NATO between the United States and the European powers. That's a process that's been underway for some time. The 2% contribution of GDP on the part of each NATO country, that's not new. That was had already been agreed to. He's also claiming now 4%. That has not been established. I think there's usefulness in this. I think part of the story of the 21st century in this story began with Obama, not with Trump, is the renegotiation of the U.S. relationship to the world. And part of that renegotiation is going to be a broader sharing of military responsibilities. I think the Pax Americana under which the world operated for much of the time between the 1940s and early 21st century, I think that is fading into history. And there's a new world system that one can see emerging by fits and starts. And Trump is not starting that. He's continuing it. Obama started it. And so him putting money on the table, I think there's nothing wrong with that and changing the terms of uh, debate. And I think there'd be a lot of support for that in the United States. But the gratuitous attacks on uh, European figures and the attacks on NATO as an institution and having people wonder whether he is committed to it while his aides are furiously running around like uh, Defense Secretary Mattis trying to assure all the Europeans that the commitment is there, everything, the tanks will be there and everything else in terms of the U.S. commitment will be there. The chaos, the disruption that he has stirred up combined with his efforts to bully the European Union on the one hand and then to submit to Putin on the other is such an extraordinary moment. There's going to be ramifications from that that are not directly tied to the specific issue he came to Europe allegedly to promote. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. So the submission to Putin, which is the thing that is generating extraordinary, passionate, not debate, but revulsion, frankly, particularly in the United States, and not just among his opponents in the Democratic Party, but many people in the Republican Party too, and some really striking people, Newt Gingrich and others, who are saying that they can't believe it. Now, there isn't, you know, this word treason is being thrown around, which I find really baffling, because my instinctive response to it was, this is a press conference. That's a very odd place to commit an act of treason. I mean, if there is treason here, it's not the thing that people were so outraged by, which was the way in which he seemed to submit to Putin in public 
and throw his own intelligence establishment under a bus in doing so. But also, I do think it is worth saying about Trump, it was a press conference and he does hold these press conferences. And he had the one with Theresa May at Chequers. Many of the stupid, bafflingly stupid things he does, he does in public. This isn't secret. Um, They look like acts of self-sabotage more than they look like acts of treason. He can't control himself. He can't resist. He answers the questions that he's asked, even in the Putin one. He doesn't refuse to answer the questions. It's um, So I just think treason is the wrong word for this. This is something else. Maybe acts of treason were committed in his meeting with Putin, but people's relentless focus on what he showed them suggests to me that what we're dealing with here is not that. It's something else. It's a president out of control, a president who doesn't know what belongs in public and what belongs in private. It's unquestionably disastrous for him in some ways. But the register for it seems to me to be wrong. I actually think that the response to it is way overblown. Am I wrong? You might be. Uh, <laughs> you, you think might it's overblown? Be. The difficulty that many of us are having is we don't know how to explain this behavior. Here is a man who will attack anybody without hesitation and say anything that pops into his head and try and bully uh, anyone. He also is a man who senses fear almost preternaturally, and if he senses fear, he goes on the attack and damn the consequences. So why is his behavior toward Putin so different? What is going on here? And we do not know the answer to that. And why his reluctance to say anything critical about Putin at all? I think, and this is where the treason thinking creeps in. It's not anything particular that he said at the press conference, but it's watching this man every day. And he has been on the front page of every news media outlet for three years now, since the summer of 2015. That in itself is a remarkable political achievement, unparalleled in my lifetime. Not just political achievement, it's just a remarkable achievement. It's just a remarkable achievement. And part of his MO is is his willingness to say anything, attack anybody without fear of the consequences. So what is he scared about in relationship to Putin? And I think that is the question. And I think people think that Putin owns him in some way. For reasons, again, we, we don't know, perhaps having to do with the Trump organization, perhaps having to do with the prostitutes peeing in the Russian hotel room, that there's a dossier out there that perhaps Putin and the oligarchs can bring down the entire Trump establishment because of loans made to that organization in the early 2000s. And I think the fear in America is that Trump owes Putin something so grand and so important that he has no choice but to submit in these situations. And there, the the fear of treason um, crops up. So I'm going to offer a rival explanation. I, again, have no idea if this is true, but at least it seems to me that it's possible that rather than that kind of straightforward blackmail scenario, Trump, before he got elected, is a man who he has no moral discrimination. Everyone is equal to him. If he does business with them, they're fine. And if he doesn't, they're not. And these are people he's done business with. So he wasn't going to say anything against them. And then since the election, the central issue in his mind has been to defend the legitimacy of his election against people who would doubt it, which means in his own mind, he has no choice but to push back as hard as he can, whenever he can, even if he's standing next to this monster, against the people in the US who want to say that the Russians won him the election. And in his own mind, he's not clear enough about the difference between collusion and interference. And he's he's pushing back as hard as he can against collusion, whether rightly or wrongly, I think he believes there was no collusion. And he can't stop at the point where he should acknowledge that there was interference. 
I agree. I think that's the simplest explanation of of what's gone on. But I don't think it's so much that he, he's not clear in his own mind about the difference between collusion and interference. I think he's very clear in his own mind about that difference. What he's not got is the verbal dexterity to make that distinction in public when he's at a press conference and rattled. And, and I, I, the thing that he's grown back on the would becomes would not is actually trying to make that distinction. That, yeah, they would have interfered, but they didn't. I think it did, didn't do it in cahoots with me. That we've got to bear in mind is, is what would happen if he did do what his critics want him to do, which is very explicitly to attack Putin and say you interfered in the election, is, is it would very quickly get turned into there's Trump admitting collusion. Because in the same way in which Trump can't in public hold a clear distinction between interference and collusion, his critics don't want to hold a distinction between these two things. They want to use Russian interference regardless of whether there was collusion or not, to delegitimate his presidency. And I think that the evidence that they've wanted to do that has come out, you know, pretty drip by drip in terms of the investigations of the FBI and the and the Justice Department. So I don't think there's anything that he could do that could be acceptable to his critics on this. And because he kind of in some gut sense understands that, he says whatever he wants to say, allied to the fact that he's not very good at making verbal distinctions when he's under pressure. That said, you would presumably accept that what happened in Helsinki was a disaster I would for think Trump. it was a complete disaster for Trump, not least because I also don't see what he actually substantively got out of having this summit. There was nothing in substantive terms achieved. It's not even clear what he was trying to achieve. You could perhaps say he wanted some agreement that Putin was going to pressurise Iran to withdraw from Syria, but if that's what he went for, he certainly didn't get it. So to put himself in this position whereby he opened up the favoured charge that his critics have against him at the point when actually he turned the tables on them quite successfully I would say over the last six months was from his point of view political madness particularly when you've got absolutely nothing out of it. I may have more respect for Trump as a politician than you do uh, in in the sense that I think he's he's brilliant politically I think he is capable of making distinctions that he's he needs to make for the sake of survival and he's He's got a terrific sense of survival. And this summit with Putin does not fit with that pattern of being a, a survivalist and trying out different techniques and being ad hoc and trying out different things just to see their effect and, and improvising. None of that nimbleness that I associate with him is is present here. Plus, he's he's got uh, an incredibly well-oiled, well-organized Republican Party machine willing to die for him over the distinction of interference versus collusion. The other extraordinary event of the last week was the hearing in Congress when Peter Strozak, who's accused of showing favoritism to Clinton when, when he was employed at the FBI, the way he was attacked by Republican representatives and the way in which they tried to destroy his reputation and him was itself an extraordinary event. And so he has cost himself a lot of support with Republicans, needlessly so. Whereas, if so, I think he's capable of making the distinction but I think between there's, interference. There's, and there's, there's two different things here, isn't it? Is, is what distinctions he makes in his mind, what distinctions he can articulate when he's under pressure, and what he actually wants in terms of relations with Russia, because that's the bit that we've left out of it mm-hmm. so far. Because there's there's the what happened in 2016 question. There's the attempts by his critics to use the Russia question to delegitimate his presidency. Then there's a question of, well, what kind of relations does the United States need with Russia at the moment, or should it have at Russia in this changing geopolitical world? And I would say that Trump runs into difficulties every time in his presidency 
and gets really put on the defensive domestically when he tries to address, let's have a different kind of relations with Russia. And that's his weakness because he keeps, in some sense, he's retreated from that in his actions over the last six months, nine months, including you know, a much stronger policy towards supporting the Ukrainian government with arms than the Obama administration ever had, the bombing of Syria and the Assad regime in April. So it's not like in practice he's not willing to have a confrontational relationship with Russia. But when he tries for these acts of whatever they are, cooperation, discussion, it, it tends to fall. In fact, it not just tends, it does fall apart for him. Just to go back to what Gary said, it was really interesting. Actually, So you, you persuade me that there is another way to think about this, which is... So if you start from your premise, he's a skilled politician who knows what he's doing. So then he does something really stupid, not because he's stupid. So we need another explanation for why is he doing this? Why in this case have all his instincts deserted him? He's being manipulated, he's being controlled, whatever. So I can sort of see that logic. But then I struggle with the idea of why would Putin do it? What has Putin got to gain by putting, if there is that relationship between them, by putting it on display in this way? Because nothing came out of this and that's the other thing I struggle with, which is if what we saw in Helsinki was the puppet and the puppet master, why would the puppet master show the strings? I think Putin had a great week. Uh, World Cup was a stunning success. Okay, that's... The, the uh, <laughs> and he is... He looked embarrassed with Trump in some ways, and particularly that bit where he, he jumped to Trump's defense and reminded the world that, yes, in our yeah. private meeting, Trump did defend the interests of America, almost like Donald... Like, this isn't helping anyone. I think he said less rather than more and wanted to get that press conference over with as quickly as possible. But the... the, Which makes me feel like it was Trump's initiative, that press conference. I think it it was. But I think Putin welcomes this as a reassertion of Russian pride and authority in in the world arena. For Putin, the collapse of communism in the Soviet Union was... That was his Weimar moment, the embarrassment of a great nation, something that never should have happened, and then NATO encroaching on them in ways they never should have done. And there's a parallel between him and Hitler. I'm not saying that he's a fascist like Hitler was, but in terms of reclaiming national pride and putting Russia back on the national stage, I think that's a deep motivation. And so there's a sense of equivalence here with Trump standing next to him, showing the world that he may be a more, he now has a reputation as a more effective leader than Trump. And I think that redounds to his and Russia's benefit as he sees it. We're going to puzzle through what, if anything, was accomplished. It seems, reading between the lines, that perhaps the one thing that was accomplished was some deal on Syria involving Israel. Of course, we don't, we haven't seen the details yet. Nothing has has been released. But you can begin to see a concord emerging between Syria and the U.S. and Israel to contain the Iranian threat in Syria and to perhaps roll back Iran. One can glimpse that beginning to emerge, and I think Israel was the one country mentioned in the press conference. It was. I had a look at the Jerusalem Post um, yesterday, and they, their take, or a columnist, I should say, is uh, take in the Jerusalem Post. And basically the article was saying, look, this is a really significant moment for Israel because Putin and Trump both talked about we in relation to Israel, as if Russia and the United States have got common interests, a common approach to Israel's security predicaments, not least in relation to Syria and Iranian influence in in Syria. But I think you could say, did Trump go or did Putin, the pair of them, have that meeting in order to achieve that? You could see quite a lot of that before. Now, in terms of actually, from Israel's point of view, having a public articulation of the common interest, that may be something that's new. But it's pretty clear, I think, that there has been 
cooperation between those three powers over what's been going on in southern Syria around the Israel border. And this is a moment to declare it. That may be a significant development from this substantive, whether we like it or not, from this meeting. Putin did also praise the Korea deal, not that there is a deal, because nothing seems to much seems to have happened. But he did at least, as it were, use a kind of we language when talking about his admiration for what Trump had done there. I don't know if that means anything. I still think, though, there is a question of like, well, was it worth Trump from Trump blowing up his presidency for for this? I mean, that I I think is a an awkward question to think that there was some well thought out motive that Trump had in terms of doing this. And I think as well, though, on the point about Trump being a skilled politician, I actually I do agree with you in a number of ways, Gary, that he is a skilled politician, but he's also a very unskilled politician in a number of ways. And one of them is is, is the absence of verbal dexterity when under pressure. I mean, I think you could see that really in that, I think it was the second, wasn't it, of those debates with Hillary Clinton where his syntax pretty much entirely collapsed in the latter parts of the debate. When he's stressed and very stressed, he cannot speak coherently. But also he, he does lack the ability to know when to stop as well. And I think I think he was on a high. I actually think that this thing would have been different if it had been at the start of his European trip. I think he really liked meeting the Queen. <laughs> I mean, genuinely, I love that photo of him and Melania. I love the look on the Queen's face. God bless her. Anyway, but he, he'd had in some ways, I think in his own mind, a genuinely triumphant trip. I think he thought that he'd kind of shaken up the Brexit debate. He'd had this triumph in NATO. He genuinely does not know when to stop. And I think this press conference was a step too far. Perhaps a form of hubris, yeah. too. One of his big supporters, Sean Hannity, a leading commentator on Fox News, likes to talk about velocity as a political strategy. And Trump operates at such a speed, and that is itself a, a political virtue. So I heard Hannity talk at some point about the numbers of meetings that Trump is having with great world leaders within a short time span, beginning with the North Korean dictator, and including May and NATO and Putin and so I do believe that this is a strategy they pride themselves on and injecting more velocity, which also is chaos into international relations. And they see Trump as a master of chaos, being able to generate chaos and then to benefit from it. I agree with you fully. Sometimes the chaos becomes so great that he can't control it. And one of the things that's interesting about the Putin moment is he has had to backtrack. And certain walls of defense that he has had in the Republican Party have been breached in ways they have not been breached before. That doesn't mean we should go to what I call the gotcha moment of the New York Times and the other liberal media. One more revelation about Trump and we can bring him down. That gotcha strategy has been their leading strategy for three years and it hasn't worked and I don't think it's going to work at this time. But that informs the liberal media's response to this Putin moment. Yeah, I was watching Rachel Maddow and not only did she begin her report of this with like, deep breath, everyone calm down, as though this might be it. But she also said, it might happen while we're on air, which is always a moment when you think you guys have gone too far. You're talking about velocity, it reminded me of another early 20th century parallel, not the Hitler one, but futurism and actually the forerunner of fascism in Italy, which was the celebration of speed. I think there are more parallels there, which is just that the thing that came before fascism was this celebration of technology and speed and motorbikes and stuff like that. Trump has a bit of that to him too. One last thing, because we've got you here, Gary, and I hope we can catch up again on this in the autumn, but I wanted to ask you about this too. The other big development in American politics, which is the victory of Ocasio-Cortez in the New York Democratic primary, and this young woman 
who describes herself as a socialist, is Bernie Sanders kind of a bit plus as well, not least because she's young and she's not an old white man, and is being described in various places as the future of the Democratic Party, and that, that we've got our first glimpse of the really big change that is coming demographically, ethnically, and in terms of the possibility of a politics that moves quite radically to the left. I want to ask you about this now, and then I'll ask you again in the in the fall, in the autumn, when I hope we can talk to you again. Do you believe it? It's significant. I'm not sure it's, it's really significant. Socialism has never captured the Democratic Party in the history of the Democratic Party, and I don't think it'll start now. She has a remarkable story. She's 28. Ten months ago, she was waiting on tables in New York and trying to support a family. And, and now she's the future of the Democratic Party. And now Party. she's the future of the Democratic Party. The seat that she's going to win is a safe seat for the Democrats. So she's not going to have much of a contest in the fall. That in itself is not going to change the Democratic Party. The question is, what is the significance of this grassroots radicalism within the Democratic Party, and how far will it spread beyond New York? New York in itself is not significant because it's New York and everyone in New York votes for Democrats. To what extent will this inspire people elsewhere? To what extent will it make a difference in some red states? There were some interesting Trump voters who were very drawn to Bernie Sanders in 2016. And one of the things the Democrats need if they're going to be successful They can't just hate Trump. They can't just have a robust identity politics. They need some kind of economic program that has got to moderate the extreme inequality that has become characteristic of American life. If she can deliver on that, if she can deliver programmatically, if this can become institutionalized in various kinds of organizations where it spreads, not that it'll take over the Democratic Party, but compel the Democratic Party to respond and to develop uh, a political economy of the left or left liberalism that can provide meaningful answers to the Trump challenge, the right populist Trump challenge, then we will in fact come to see this as a very significant moment. So pushing the Democratic Party to the left, pushing them to develop the kind of economic program that in this very tumultuous time, they've been very slow to develop. Yeah, I think it it is significant and not significant. I think it's significant because it showed that actually there was some energy in the Democratic Party and a Democratic Party that at the establishment level and in um, in in Washington and what remains of the the Clinton machine was really bound up with a lot of negative energy just around simply attacking Trump as Putin's pawn or whatever language we're going to use to describe him and just as Gary said didn't really have anything to say about the economic questions that face the United States. I think that there's a danger for it too in that the more that the Democratic Party moves to the left over certain questions and I would say the questions to do with the border. The more that you get attacks on the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency, I think that that kind of plays into Trump's hands. I'm going to give myself the last word on this. (laughs) So something I'm increasingly preoccupied with is what makes our politics different from any politics in the history of politics is that we're the first societies in human history where old people outnumber young people. And that this is, I increasingly think this is the central fact. So when I see a 28-year-old woman hailed as the future of politics, I think in lots of ways it's really exciting, but there's a category mistake that we make, which is we think young people are the future and old people are the future. And that is something that we shouldn't forget. We're going to be with you throughout the summer. We've got a really exciting season of programmes coming up. We're going to put a little episode out on Sunday to tell you all about that. We're doing a live podcast from the Wilderness Festival in early August, talking about the politics of food, something we've never discussed before, but I am really, really interested in. Do join us for that. 
My name is David Runciman and we've been Talking Politics. So I have a more important question. Is he Brett Kavanaugh or Kavanaugh? Kavanaugh. 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 <laughs> Kavanaugh. <laughs> Say it posh English. Kavanaugh. Brett Kavanaugh. What, what, so what did you say? Kavanaugh. 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 Brett Kavanaugh. Kavanaugh. It's Brett, isn't it? Brent. Brent. Brett. Brett. Brett Kavanaugh. <laughs> these, are, these are the main. Brett Kavanaugh. And he coaches his girls' um, softball team. All That's All that. It, it, he's all raising that. a village. And he was raised by a village, as one of the columnists said. And the name of that village is the Conservative Legal Establishment. <laughs> they take them very young, <laughs> take them from their parents. Yes. It's, it's like this prim- platonic it's like Premier League. Yeah, exactly. Seven-year-olds, and they spot the talent. <laughs> Have them doing briefs at the age of eight. Exactly. They do little debating competitions in kindergarten. Before we go, you may have heard me say that there's now a way to get in touch with us and to record some questions you'd like us to answer, and we're delighted that people have started doing that. We got this question from Jenny. Hi, Helen, David and co. Um, Thank you for listening to this. I'm just really interested, really, in issues around free speech at the moment. I was wondering what you think about this kind of new movement of the supposed intellectual dark web and individuals like Jordan Peterson and Dave Rubin and Brett Weinstein and this kind of issue that seems to be coming up more and more with political correctness and so on but I just wondered if you you'd fed into any of this and uh, if you've got any thoughts on you know is, is this a positive move this kind of pro-free speech individuals and, and, and have you really had much experience of them thanks very much for your time that is a really good question partly because I think Helen and I have been thinking about this I heard Jordan Peterson on the Joe Rogan podcast quite recently. Uh, for people who don't know, that's one of the most popular podcasts in the world, I think. It goes on for hours and hours. He has these unedited, unfiltered, very, very long conversations with people. Uh, the one with Jordan Peterson was fascinating, partly because this guy, Joe Rogan, has more or less come from nowhere, and podcasting has made him internationally not just famous, but really, really influential. Jordan Peterson like many other people, potentially from the dark web, wasn't really anybody. He had a small audience and there were people who were interested in him. But in the last year, 18 months, he's exploded. And what he and Rogan were talking about was partly their complete bafflement at their own situation. It was it was quite, in its way, an endearing conversation between two people who have been completely freaked out by the fact that the thing that they thought that they were doing in a sort of dark web way has now become ubiquitous and they are way way more famous than they can even understand and I just found more than actually what Peterson was saying about free speech and politics I found the personal bit of his story the really interesting part and it was human the way he said he didn't understand really he was thrilled by it and he was terrified by it but he did not understand the power that he now has. I think this question of how Jordan Peterson has become this phenomenon is incredibly interesting. I actually, and I can't even remember how I got there, I listened to his podcasts when they were about psychology, Jungian psychology and Bible stories, really, before he became famous. Before he became Jordan Peterson. Before he became Jordan Peterson. And I listened to them for a while and found them quite engaging, not always because I agreed with him, and then I found them a bit repetitive and stopped listening to them and then sometime later it dawned on me that there was a connection between this person (laughs) whose podcast I listened to for a while and this phenomenon that Jordan Peterson 
had become. I think one of the things that is interesting about him as a phenomenon is is that he gets positioned with these people who've come to be called the intellectual dark web and this freedom of speech question that Jenny has raised and indeed that is what made him controversial in Canada. But it seemed to me, not just from listening to them but since then I've read the book as well, is is that his ambition goes way beyond questions about freedom of speech, that he's in some sense kind of trying to reinvent Christianity in an age where it isn't really possible for many people to have a literal belief in it and to do it with a sense of like, how do you have this faith or belief, whatever it is, after Auschwitz and Hiroshima and the Gulag? And he's trying to do it via Jungian psychology. And that's a pretty phenomenal ambition. Now, I think you can see how it leads him into some real problems in terms of his own personality, because it seems to me, just observing it, that he's become ever more messianic himself as the Jordan phenomenon, Jordan Peterson phenomenon has gone on. But I think that the phenomenon can be explained by the depth of the question that he's going at. The other thing, Jenny, that your question made us think was Jordan Peterson is coming to Cambridge, we believe, in November and the best thing that we could do would be to get him on the podcast and ask him some of these questions ourselves. Some of you may also have seen there was a nice article about this podcast in The Observer a while back in which I was asked who my dream guest was and I said it was J.K. Rowling. So if anyone out there knows a way to persuade J.K. Rowling to come on Talking Politics, we would be absolutely thrilled to hear from you. If you'd like to leave a question for us, just go to talkingpoliticspodcast.com and click on contacts and you'll see how to do it. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.